Uh, we're continuing our, our summer sermon series from the book of Psalms, and uh, I'm going to read the psalm for us. If you have a Bible, you can turn there, Psalm 130. If you uh, want to use the, the blue Bibles in the chair racks under the chairs in front of you, that's on page 502. Psalm 130, this is the Word of God. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise that you meet us in the depths. Father, we praise you that uh, you know all about the depths. You don't sit idly by in your comfort in heaven and look down and, and see the troubles of this earth and, and, uh, and, and are removed and distant from it. But Lord, you enter in. You know we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus, you became one of us. Uh, you underwent all the miseries of this life. You lived under the law. Uh, you, uh, you were subject to a sinful world, a broken world. You bore our sins on the cross. You know all about the brokenness of this world. You've experienced the depths and ways, Lord Jesus, then... then we cannot. And so we thank you that you're with us, that you listen, that you care. Lord, teach us from your word today. Encourage us wherever we may be on our journey. Show us a glimpse of your love and help us to trust in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 130 begins in the depths. Right? The psalmist sees himself sinking in the middle of the sea. The ship is going down, as it were, and, and there's no one around to help him. It's a picture of desperation, almost hopelessness. And try to imagine what that would be like. Put yourself in that image if you can. Maybe some movies can help us out with this. You know, I thought of the movie Pearl Harbor. It's been a number of years since it's been out, but when the Japanese are, are bombing, as one of the ships begins to break up, crewmen are thrown in the sea, and I still remember this, this um, heart-wrenching scene shot from the perspective of the depths, looking up at these crewmen struggling to tread water. Or maybe you might think of the, the desperation of the, the, the situation in the movie The Perfect Storm. If you recall that movie, this fishing boat is threatened to be swallowed up by a giant wave in the middle of the ocean with no one around to help. Or maybe you think of Jack and Rose floating on the ocean in Titanic, desperately hoping for someone to come along and save them before they drown or they freeze to death in the frigid waters. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. 
from a place of desperation, fear, loneliness, danger, apparent hopelessness. Have you been there? Are you there now? It's easy to pretend as if life is fine, isn't it? We, we put on a smile, we tell everyone that everything's all right, and, and that may in fact be the case for you right now, but it won't always be. We live in a fallen world, and, and we're fallen people, and this metaphor of the depths is used in different ways throughout the psalm. Sometimes it speaks of our struggle with personal sin. It's like uh, we're in the depths of our sin. We're, we're sinking. Maybe it's an addiction of some sort, alcohol or, or pornography. Maybe it's anger that you just can't get a handle on. It could be bitterness or the inability to forgive someone who has hurt you. Maybe it's a struggle to understand your worth in Christ, and so you turn to some alternative to try to find your value, to, to convince yourself that your life counts for something. Some hurt or habit or hang-up has sunk its teeth into you. Sometimes our sins seem overwhelming to us if we think about it. And it's as if we're floating in the middle of the ocean with no way to get to shore. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. So sometimes this metaphor of the depths refers to our struggle with sin, but but other times it refers simply to the consequences of living in a fallen world sinful world. Psalm 69 is an example of this. The psalm begins, verse 1, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. And the reason in Psalm 69 is given in verse 4. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs on my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. Maybe you've been stabbed in the back by a friend, cheated on, gossiped about. Life in a fallen world means that we will, at some point or another, all of us will experience the depths. And if our faith means anything, It's not just sentimental, head-in-the-ground drivel. Then our faith must address this this reality head-on. It must say something about the depths. Regardless of why you're in the depths, your own sin, the sin of others, just simply living in a fallen world, what do you do when you find yourself there? What do you do when the bottom is dropped out of your life and it feels as if you're sinking? Psalm 130 gives us perspective. It's a helpful guide for how to live in a fallen world. And when we find ourselves in the depths, we learn from the psalmist in Psalm 130 to respond in at least three ways, three ways that I'll give you today. The first is to cry out to the God who hears Cry out to the God who hears. The psalmist begins by acknowledging his experience in the depths, but it's from within the depths that he cries out to God. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. It's not unusual for people to do anything but this, right? Right? 
Sometimes the pain that we're feeling, we lash out towards God. We're tempted to conclude that God doesn't exist, right? Or he doesn't care, or he's impotent. He can't do anything about it. The classic problem of evil, how could a good God allow this to happen in my life? And so rather than crying out to God, asking God to come in to the situation, we become cynical. We despair. We turn away. We pull away from God sometimes. Sometimes we don't doubt God's existence, but if we're honest, we recognize our own sin, and we want to run from God instead of running to Him. You know, this was Martin Luther's experience, that great Protestant reformer in the 16th century as uh, the beginning of his life in the 1500s, before he discovered the gospel, he was so painfully aware of his sinfulness in the face of a holy God that God terrified him. He didn't want anything to do with God. In fact, at, at some point in his life, he said, I didn't trust God. I didn't love God. I hated him. Before he found Christ, his life changed. You know, Luther's experience is extreme. He's probably more honest than many of us are. He's certainly more honest than I am, I think, sometimes. But do you find yourself doing the same thing to some degree? When you sin, sometimes the last thing you want to do is talk to God about it. But the psalmist doesn't respond in either of these two ways. Instead, he cries out to God. He prays. He pursues God. The depths usually silence everything they swallow, but Psalm 130 shows us that our suffering is not beyond God's capacity to hear and to, and to do something about it. Not only does He hear, He cares. Not only does He care, He's deeper than any depth we could ever experience in our lives. Your troubles cannot separate you from God. God can meet you in the depths, no matter how deep it feels it is. Here, Psalm 139, a few chapters later, verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. I can't run from you in my sin, God. You're even there. Think about your own experience for a minute. It's often when all the props are knocked out. When we, we come to the end of ourselves. we have little hope of help from any other source. We've exhausted all of the ideas we can think of to, to fix our situation. It's usually there when we finally become desperate for God to show up. Sometimes God has to take us into the depths in His mercy to loosen our grip on the things that we turn to in his place. Notice how the psalmist approaches God here. He's, he comes to God mindful of his brokenness. Verse 3, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? Who, who could stand in your presence, Lord? Whether, whether the reason he found himself in the depths was because of his own struggle with sin or whether it was some other circumstance in his life, regardless, he recognizes that he has spiritual need. He doesn't come to God righteous, deserving. 
He understands his own contribution to the sins of the world. The problem isn't just out there. It's, it's not just in our difficult circumstances. The problem even more fundamentally is in here. But not only does he acknowledge his sin, he recognizes the grace of God. Verse 4, but with you, God, with you, there's forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. Though God is holy and is a just judge who must punish sin, he's also a loving father who loves to show mercy, to extend forgiveness. That's why he sent his son. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Through Jesus' death on the cross, he stood in our place and he fully satisfies God's justice and judgment for sin. Were it not for Jesus, none of us could stand. We'd all sink to the deep. But because of Jesus, there's forgiveness for those who come to him in faith. And having experienced forgiveness through faith in Christ, we can reverently serve him. The appropriate response to the incredible gift of God's grace is reverence. It's awe and wonder, it's, it's praise, it's worship, a life that seeks to honor him in serving him. And so the first thing Psalm 130 encourages us to do then when we find ourselves in the depths is to cry out to God, to move toward God, to pray that God would come into our lives, to honestly bring all of ourselves, our prayers, trusting that because of Christ, he cares for us. He hears us, he listens And he'll ultimately work for our good. So the second response is that as we pray, as we cry out to God, we wait on the God who makes promises. We wait on the God who makes promises. Verse 5, I wait on the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my trust. Now, notice, this is important. It is God himself that the psalmist waits for. It's not primarily escape, uh, not not deliverance from the difficult circumstances. He says, I wait for the Lord. This is is a radically God-centered way of, of being in the depths. You're focused on God. God, I need you. I need you to show up in my life. And too often, I think we're, we're so preoccupied with our circumstances and, and, and our needs, our wants, that we almost use God, don't we, as a means to an end? Sometimes we can do that. It's, he's like a talisman or, or an idol to get what's really most important to us. He becomes a, mean, a means to an end rather than the end itself. But even in the depths, the psalmist's chief concern is that he have God himself. Only God can satisfy. Only God is deep enough to meet our deepest needs. Look how he repeats himself. He says, I wait for the Lord. My whole being, everything that's in me, waits for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. He's resolved. He's earnest, focused, intense. God is worth waiting for. And when we wait in faith, instead of in bitterness, the waiting itself 
the waiting itself actually becomes beneficial to us. It tries our faith. It strengthens our trust. It trains our submission. It teaches us patience. It increases our joy when God's blessing finally comes. Have you experienced this? What's the basis for this hope? He tells us in verse 5, it's, it's God's Word. This is not a, a vague optimism that things will get better in the future. There's, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's, it's not wishful thinking. It's not speculation. It's the reality of what an all-powerful God has promised His people. A God who cannot lie. And so when you find yourselves in the depths Do you rest in his word? Do you rehearse his promises? Do you know the Bible well enough to do that? Do you claim his promises in prayer? You need to know God's word so well that when the bottom does drop out of your life, you have these things there to to remind yourself of and and to cling to. And so take advantage of the the ace hour when it starts up again in a few weeks as our our growth groups will begin to to get ready to launch again for the fall. Uh, Look into those. Join one of the men's or women's Bible studies. CR meets every Wednesday. They have studies on Monday that that apply biblical truth to our hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And so maybe that would be of help to you. These things are not academic exercises for us. When we offer these classes, it's not just to increase our knowledge, but it's as we increase our knowledge, we cling to these things. They become a lifeline to us, a life preserver when we find ourselves floating in the deep. We have to know it. We have to let it shape the way we see and live in the world. Well, the psalmist says he places his hope in God's Word, but how does God's Word actually help? What has God said? What has He promised? Well, the psalmist alludes to these promises in the final section of the psalm. And on that basis, thirdly, um, this psalm calls us to hope in the God who redeems. To hope in the God who redeems. What a contrast from the beginning. The psalmist begins with this personal cry of anguish in verse 1, and and in verse 7 and 8, he's calling out to everyone around him to trust in God's unfailing love. Verse 7, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. Full redemption. Once again, the The psalmist underscores a Godward focus. He is what we ultimately need. Put your hope in the Lord. Deliverance from sickness or sin or or suffering serves this purpose of knowing God, of, of encountering God. This word redemption, full redemption, means to buy back, literally. It's often used in a physical sense for deliverance from danger or oppression in in our circumstances. It also is used in a spiritual sense, ultimately, for deliverance from sin. Both aspects of redemption apply equally in the depths. 
We need deliverance from our circumstances. We ultimately need deliverance from our sin. God redeems us from all of those things. As far as the curse is found, He redeems us from the effects of the fall. The New Testament explains that this Old Testament hope expressed here in this psalm comes to us through Jesus. And the psalm speaks of full redemption, not just part of it, but everything Jesus has done uh, will redeem us. And when we turn to the New Testament, we learn more about what this is. We, we learn that our redemption is past, something Jesus has already done. It's present, something he's continuing to do in our lives now. It's future as well. Christ has, past tense, redeemed us from the penalty of sin if we're united to him by faith. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are already justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And Paul's clear to explain that this happens for us by faith in Christ. Your sin gives you a legal problem. You're guilty in the court of God's justice. We deserve his judgment, but, and, and we have no, no reason to expect him to hear our cries from the depths on the basis of our own merits. But because he loves his people, he sent his son to redeem us from the guilt of sin. And if you're trusting in Christ, that redemption has already happened. It's past tense. The theological term for that is you have been justified. It's an act. It's happened in your past. You're no longer guilty. Christ has taken away the penalty of your sin. The psalmist says he keeps no record of wrongs. You know what it's like when people keep record of wrongs. It's just always hanging out over your head, something that they remind you of to kind of pull you back in under their, their power, their manipulation. God keeps no record of wrongs. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. Jesus, if Jesus is your deliverer, God will hear. God will respond. God has already responded to your cry of help. Second, Christ is redeeming us from the power of sin. Present tense, this is happening now. Romans 6, a few chapters later in Romans. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin, enslaved to sin, might be done away with. We should no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 7, because if anyone has died, anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 12, therefore... Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its evil desires. Verse 14, for sin shall no longer be your master. Why? Because you're not under the law, but you are now under grace. The good news of the gospel is that not only have you already been forgiven, but it's also that you are no longer a slave to sin. You've been redeemed, delivered, freed from the domineering power of sin over your life. Look, we will always struggle with sin in this life until glory, but Christ has set us free from slavery to it. You don't have to keep sinning in the same way. 
you can see growth. You can see progress. Is there a particular sin that keeps getting you down? And are you tempted to just throw in the towel? This is just who I am. Well, if the gospel is at work in your life, you don't settle for that. You have the power of the Holy Spirit within you. You cry out to him to help you pull you out of the depths on the basis of Christ's redemption for you. And so ask him to help you to so experience his love for you, despite your sin, that you come to hate the sin that required Jesus to die. If you keep submitting to it, it's as if you were in jail, but when the sentence is fulfilled and the prison door opens, you refuse to walk out. So not only has Christ redeemed you from the penalty of sin, he set you free from its power as well. You don't have to stay in the depths. Grab onto the lifeline and start swimming towards shore. So Christ has already redeemed us from the penalty of sin, past tense. He is redeeming us from its power, present, and one day... Christ will redeem us from the very presence of sin in our lives. Because we're no longer slaves to sin, on one hand, we have hope that we can see progress over particular sins in this life. But as soon as we make progress in one area, area I don't know about your experience, but, but in my experience, we recognize other areas, <laughs> right? Um, the sin problem goes deeper than I thought it did. Because of Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin, but now we fight against it every day. We never get past it in this life, ultimately, even as we make progress. These two truths provide a healthy balance. Progress is possible, but the fight's not over yet. One day it will be. Furthermore, every difficulty we face in life is a result of entrance of sin into the world. You may have health problems, conflict with your spouse, a domineering boss or workplace. You may have suffered from a tragic accident from which you will never fully recover in this life. You may be lonely or depressed or anxious. Whatever pain or suffering or difficulties you face, know this, brothers and sisters. Jesus will one day remove them all. Amen? His full redemption extends even to them. Charles Spurgeon put it this way in a sermon he preached. He said, When Adam fell, God cursed the world with barrenness. Thorns and briars shall it bring forth from you, and in the sweat of your brow you'll eat bread. God cursed the earth. When Christ came into the world, they twisted a crown made of the cursed thorn, and they put that on his head and made him king of the curse. And in that day, he purchased the redemption of the world from its curse. When Christ shall come a second time, this world will become everywhere as fertile as the garden of paradise used to be. That's our hope. That's beautiful. Our present sufferings, whatever they are, the depths that we find ourselves in are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us when Christ returns. He's already given us a down payment toward that day by redeeming us from sin's penalty and power. 
Sometimes he gives us a foretaste of that day now as he delivers us from sickness or some circumstances, as he heals or provides a job or orchestrates reconciliation in a broken relationship. All of those things, friends, are foretaste samples, little, uh, little, little samples in the grocery store aisle of what the feast is going to one day be like. And because God cannot lie, and because God's purposes cannot be thwarted, We can wait patiently, even from the depths, that the full effects of Christ's redemption will come in every stain of sin in this world, every injustice, every evil, every difficulty, every health problem, every relational conflict, all of it will be removed one day. Christ died to redeem us and this world, to claim it, to buy it back, and he'll have it. When you understand this this panoramic sweep of what is included in full redemption, everything from deliverance from the guilt and power of sin over our lives as individuals to the liberation of the cosmos from all of sin's effects, when we realize this, we understand only God can do this. This is no self-help project. Verse 8 concludes, He, God, Himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. You may be be able to pull yourself out of the shallows with some self-help techniques. Prove your life in those ways. But you can't pull yourself out of the depths. Only God can do it. Your only hope is Christ's full redemption. Christ himself has plunged to the bottom of the sea and he's come out again. And because he has, he alone is the one who can bring you and me and anyone else out of the depths as well. And so when you find yourself in the depths, cry out to God. He hears you. He sent his son because he loves you. Wait patiently on the God who promises to set everything right through the redemption of his son. Invest yourself in his word so that your perspective on life is shaped by those promises. And hope in Jesus, whose full redemption begins to deal with your problems now and one day will liberate you from them completely. Let's pray. Hmm. Father, we, we praise you again that you hear us in the depths. We praise you, Father, that you keep no record of wrongs. Lord, because of the sin in the world, we find ourselves in the depths. Because of the sin in our lives, the sin in the world around us. But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ who sets us free. Thank you that we taste that already now. We've, We've begun to experience this full salvation, this full redemption. Lord, would it be an anchor to our souls? Would it give us perspective? Would it be a lifeline in times of trouble? Father, if there are people in this room, I know there are, who are hurting in particular ways today, would you shower your peace and your mercy and your grace on them? Lord, meet them. Remind them of who you are, what you've done, what you've promised you will do. And Lord, would that perspective enable us to trust in you, to know of your love for us and to live a life of reverence and joyful worship and service to you. 
no matter what we're going through, that you would be honored, that the world would know that you are more important to us than things and stuff and even our own health. Lord, be glorified in us, through us, because of what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.